0: Hey, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Andres Gomez-Emilson. Andres is aware of many hats. Uh, He's the director of research at Qualia Research Institute. Um, Also, I believe the founder, but certainly the the moderator and the the sort of uh, principal uh, contributor to uh, the content that gets posted at Qualia Computing Networking Facebook group, which I've been deeply fascinated by, and uh, that's actually kind of my um, foray uh, or entry point into some of this stuff. But as I've kind of get uh, gotten drawn in, it, I've just been deeply fascinated by it. I'd also just say, I mean, you're just a brilliant human being and you uh, exude a wonderful uh, lightness and uh, uh, exuberance. And uh, so, um, yeah, I really wanted to talk to you um, about a couple of things as I've been diving into some of the stuff that you've been doing and some of the work. Um, I think Uh, there's so many areas that we could explore and there's a lot of different angles, points of entry here, but the one that I thought might be the most compelling uh, up front, anyway um, is to consider uh, what you talk about as the consciousness versus pure replicators uh, idea. So um, I figured we could get into some of that, uh, but yeah, I don't know, just uh, first off, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. And I'm looking forward to exploring some of these topics (laughs) with you
1: you know it's uh thank you so much for yeah for inviting me and uh i uh yeah no i mean you've been having some amazing guests uh obviously roger thesdale is uh in the sphere and uh i'm just like so happy that like the community is kind of like shaping up and also that like we can actually talk about things like, you know, fourth path, classical enlightenment with like a normal dude who's like 26 years old rather than like, you know, some esoteric like, yeah, anyway. For sure.
0: for sure, <laughs> Yes. Uh, I discovered uh, Roger through the sort of uh, network and um, obviously yeah, he's been on a couple times and agreed such a brilliant, wonderful, uh, insightful human being. I also forgot to mention too, that you've um, had a couple of stoa appearances. So it's just interesting, you know, as you say, like the, there's um there's just a lot of overlap and synergy between a lot of the communities of of people thinking at certain levels and it's really exciting to see all the different uh kind of cross pollinations going on um so let's dive into it um there's a particular uh video that you posted um that i'll link to uh and um it's called the universal plot consciousness versus pure replicators, gene servants, or blissful autopoetic beings. And there's a, an associated, um, uh, I guess you call it a blog post, but it's on the, the, uh, qualiacomputing.com sort of, uh, uh, list of posts in the archive section, um, called, uh, well, a similar name, uh, the universal plot part one consciousness, versus pure replicators. And, um, I wanted to explore some of this terrain. So, um, First, uh, I don't want to linger too long on this because I just recommend that people go watch the video and read the article and stuff. Um, and otherwise, I want to use this time to sort of dig into some of the, the meatier parts. But maybe just as a basic kind of groundwork, do you want to sort of summarize that in like three to yeah. five minutes or something? Of course, yeah. of,
1: of course, of course, yeah. So I think, uh, I mean, that's my, um, the way in which I think of kind of like ethics and like what is it that we're doing here? What what are the opportunities And what are the um, kind of like, um, what kind of like, what is it the thing that might seduce us into a pretty bad outcome? And I think like, okay, so broadly speaking, um, I kind of like categorized like four, you know, kind of like conceptual (laughs) revolutions for how to understand like ethics. Like, okay, like naively, we all start with kind of like a conception of, of the good as you know, good versus evil. And obviously there are some religions and philosophies that really kind of like want to emphasize that. Obviously also political perspectives and like even kind of like narratives, kind of like, uh, you know, children's stories, you know, good versus evil is like all over the place. But then you've got to ask, okay, like, but but what, what is the incentive actually of somebody who's evil? Like what, what is behind the the mask? And like what, what is going on there? And obviously, okay, like, um, uh, you know, a Buddhist might tell you like, okay, this is just kind of a, the result of a lot of like causes and conditions and, you know, conditioned existence. And actually like deep down, there's nobody like truly evil in kind of like a metaphysical fundamental way is in some sense, you could say is kind of like people are like unskillful and like unskillfulness kind of like builds up into, you know, like patterns of conditioning and, and ego constructs that, yeah, they kind of snowball into like really terrible things, but ultimately, yeah, it's not like there's like this evil essence out there. Um, so that's kind of like an important step. And uh, uh, a lot of people then kind of transition to this idea of the balance between good and evil, which is one way of kind of like trying to resolve this, trying to to feel good about reality and think, okay, like, um, how do I account for all of these terrible things that happen? And yeah, I mean, if you see kind of like a lot of people, you know, displaying the yin yang as kind of like the, their their most spiritual symbol, it's like, yeah, you know, there's like light and shadow, shadow, there's like pain and pleasure, they they come together. Alan Watts is like, you know, a big proponent of that is like, yeah, you know, like, yes, terrible things happen, but that's just kind of like part of the deal. Dualities are inherent to existence and, and things like that. Uh, but I will point out that When somebody is like really into like the good and evil balance between good and evil perspective, they might even say things such as like, everything is already perfect, you know, as it is. And like, this is just kind of how perfection manifests or something like that. Well, very ironically, like the reason why they believe this is because that's a mood boosting Kind of thought <laughs> like they don't know it, but they're actually trying to reduce suffering in their own mind in their own cognition by believing this, and in some sense that's almost kind of like a straight you know counter example to like the the very premise of this is uh well yes, um if you're actually like very um happy with uh you know like the balance between good and evil, yeah, I mean people should in a sense like a uh, volunteer to be you know the ones who are suffering or something like that because yeah everything balances out but yeah so i i I do regard this kind of a developmental stage not not really kind of the truth it is a little bit better than good good versus evil because at least you're not like as like neurotic and afraid and in a sense like reactive towards like things you perceive as evil uh which yeah cultivates a bit of you know equanimity and and yeah like other good good faculties of the mind um but I think it's still kind of a, a delusion. It's just not not a very skillful way of approaching this. So, okay, the, the third one is um, gradients of wisdom. So it's just kind of, okay, like, let's take this skillful versus unskillful frame and, you know, f- take it, like, much further. And, you know, people like Sam Harris, actually, I would say, like, a lot of intellectuals nowadays are kind of, like, in this, you know, the, we could call it developmental stage. It sounds arrogant. Maybe we could say, like, you know, the, um, conceptual frame or something like that. And and um essentially in gradients of wisdom, um you recognize that okay, actually there are, you know, ways of arranging uh human interactions, beliefs, um, attitudes that are much, much, much more conducive to human flourishing than others. And it's not, you know, it, we don't live in this uh you know beautiful kind of like postmodern um ecosystem where like every single philosophy you know is equally valid or anything of the sort is like no 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 actually there there are things that are like much better for human flourishing than others and let's not you know find let's, we shouldn't think about this as like an offensive or like necessarily like an ego driven observation is like oh my thing is is the better um but rather like if you develop this openness to so like no actually there are ways of you know assembling information assembling attitudes that deliver more flourishing. Yeah, it can be really humbling and and ideally it's it's uh something that actually gives rise to better even better ways of thinking um but i would say like it it still lacks kind of like um like and a capacity to like solve disagreements in a principle fashion uh because like your wisdom may not be the same as my wisdom uh plus there's kind of like a lot of like intricate problems um such as um how do you you know how do you how do you compare the value of like two different, uh, living beings, uh, and things like that. Um, so instead, I mean, I think like, uh, the, the thing that I, I was kind of advocating in that article, in that video is, let's take a kind of like a very philosophically rigorous perspective with like some explicit background assumptions. And some of the background assumptions that I, I tend to, you know, use as kind of, uh, fuel for, 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 for philosophy are things such as, um, open individualism. So like this, this idea that uh, actually, like in some very literal sense, we're all one consciousness. And of course it sounds like very hippie. It sounds very, very spiritual and so on. But there's like just so many good philosophical arguments for things in that neighborhood, even if not like literally that. Um, and many reasons why like our, you know, common sense conception of, of the self and like continuity of consciousness and so on is also probably wrong that, okay, like if you have any kind of like decent level of model uncertainty, you should assign some probability to things, you know, in the ballpark of open individualism, that we're all one. When you get there, you know, it, it it starts to kind of like, become pretty clear that, okay, like, if we're all one, you will kind of have to live through every lifetime and, you know, every point of view. So in some sense, that automatically already gives you kind of a a utilitarian perspective in in that way it's kind of utilitarianism plus like deep compassion because you will actually have to (laughs) yourself go through every single one of the possibilities um and uh, if you combine that with rationality it's like okay like you you are everybody and also let's be rational about it let's not just you know fantasize or you know create a uh romanticize it is like no no let's assume that's like kind of like literal and then like what do you do? I mean, it's it's the same right. It's like if if you know you're going to be um, hit in the head with a bat tomorrow, you probably want to plan for that. You know, if, if you know there's going to be you know a lot of factory farming next year, let's let's plan for that because you also have you know you will experience that in, from a certain perspective. Uh, and a, another another important uh, kind of element of these uh, philosophical background assumptions is uh, valence realism. This idea that deep down the thing that determines value from a moment to moment basis is how good or bad experience feels and uh this is usually thought of as a very shallow perspective like you know hedonism people bring up like oh but what about meaning you know what about community what about these other things that are not necessarily pleasant but we consider very valuable uh from from our perspective essentially um all of those things are still based on valence uh it's just that valence like how good or bad experiences feel, is a much, much, much broader, you know, set of phenomena than just, you know, bodily pleasure. You could also have like positive or negative feelings of meaning. And in that sense, yeah, that's also, you know, within valence. Um, and 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 in that sense, yeah, I, I don't think you can really escape that. So when you, once you combine kind of these like rigorous philosophical background assumptions, um, I think you arrive at essentially this new way of thinking, which is... Consciousness versus replicators, like the real, like, you know, the real plot, the real kind of like meaty stuff that is happening in this universe, the juicy stuff is uh, how patterns convince you know, consciousness that they, that consciousness is something that it isn't, you know, that, you know. (laughs) <laughs> I am you know the branch manager of you know a, a very you know very prestigious uh New York firm or something, and like that's what I am fundamentally okay like that would be kind of a possible kind of like replicator angle and on, on these but but there's like just okay that, that was just kind of a funny example that we're like it happens all, all over the place and at every scale as well you know like replicators can exist at the you know microscopic level like viruses like uh or nanotechnology. Replicators also exist at the level of uh, ideas and memes, right? Like if if a meme, you know, really makes us identify with it or or it divides society in a particular way that you may think of that as a unfortunate kind of like replicator dynamic. Um, And it also happens at the level of groups where essentially you have uh, an entire group, you know, an entire set of people identifying with the group and believing that that's what they are at a fundamental level. Right, and they 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 are afraid that if that stops existing, you know, they will stop existing fundamentally, uh, which is of course, yeah, one of these like tricks that, yes, of course, like groups that manage to convince you that will probably have an evolutionary advantage, which is, yeah, why we see that sort of behavior. Um, but probably the at the deepest level, um, the thing that is going to be the hardest to overcome, I actually think is like replicators at, at the level of genes. That essentially, uh, a lot of you know biology can be understood as uh, through the lens of the selfish gene. I mean, obviously there's a lot of updates and epicycles on that, but I mean, approximately, the genes want to make copies of themselves or want to 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 discover that way, um, independently of the well-being of the organisms that carry them, right? So if if suffering a ton is still helping your genes propagate, they they will do that. I mean, because okay, for Darwinian reasons, so. And I think, like, so many of our problems actually come down to that, that it is, you know, the selfish genes are, you know, they give us, for example, uh, uh, you know, the, the concept of the shadow, that, like, we do things without, like, realizing <laughs> actually that we are pursuing self-interest and, you know, we deceive ourselves in all sorts of ways. And all of all of that, I would, you know, kind of, like, put it on the category of replicators um, going in a bad direction. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, like, that's, Ultimately, the the plot of the universe, like you have kind of like two possible paths. I mean, to a first approximation, you have two possible paths for the long term future. You have either um, we all get like sucked in into replicator dynamics. And let's say, sure, like maybe we become some kind of like cool society, but that still has a bunch of suffering, still has a bunch of problems. And we identify with it. And we truly believe that's what we are at a fundamental level, you know, that we are Humanity itself, or that we are, you know, <laughs> the, you know, I don't know, the, the the Chinese Communist Party, as an example, whatever it may be. Um, the other path that that I see forward is kind of like a liberatory path, where like actually consciousness, the interests of consciousness are the things that that win. That we somehow manage to create a critical mass of people who realize, yeah, actually, what we are fundamentally is consciousness. Not the you know patterns that consciousness is instantiated. Uh, how can we, in a sense, merge uh, replicator dynamics so that they don't go out of control, while in such a way that they give consciousness as much freedom and space and love as possible? So yeah. okay, that's, that's perfect. Yeah. yeah,
0: no, that's. I think that really encapsulates it hits hits all the main points. And so, um, one of the things I want to get clarified is. Um, what exactly then consciousness is about? If uh, you know, in in what you're talking about, consciousness sort of a, um, How would I say this? Uh, you you talk about sort of evolution. I don't want to say developing consciousness as a kind of uh, byproduct, but it's sort of like a, a ha- kind of happy accident that, as you say, there's sort of a there's like an, a, a non-trivial amount of information processing dynamic that sort of uh, gets hit on and sort of like, this is evolutionary, advan- uh, evolutionarily adv- advantageous. And so it's, it kind of, well, starts replicating, right? Um, and, uh, and so what I'm curious about here is trying to parse out the relationship of consciousness itself to replication, right? If consciousness arose via genetic, um, you know, Darwinian evolution as a sort of... Uh, a, 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 it, it was selected for because it, 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 it uh, provided certain um, capacities that gave it an evolutionary edge. I'm trying to clarify a little bit in your way of thinking about this. Um, yeah. What then is the relationship of consciousness like Is to replication? Does it, is there a, a way that somehow um, these things are somehow fundamentally separable or are they inseparable? Do we need replicatory like genetic material to develop in order to have consciousness, but we just don't want replication to get out of control, that sort of a thing. Um, and maybe one way of clarifying that a little bit could be to go into talking a little bit more about what you mean by open individualism and the idea of sort of this sort of universal consciousness that we're all a part of. Cause it's, there's sort of the biological assumption uh, I think in the sort of reductionist sciences or, you know, the physical science, natural uh, materialistic sciences, sort of thinks of consciousness as sort of, um, you know, an epiphenomenon or uh, a or even a, an emergent property of genetic material. Um, and so there's sort of a question there, too, is like, does consciousness emerge out of replication or is it sort of a background reality that. Yeah. So speak to some of those uh, ideas. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, I think uh, consciousness
1: is a background reality, kind of uh, independent of replication. I mean, in some sense, replication is completely unavoidable because of this concept called universal Darwinism. And like, I mean, essentially, even if you look at, you know, quantum systems at the absolutely, you know, lowest level, some people actually argue um, that the way to understand them is like as evolutionary processes themselves, that essentially the, the the yeah, uh, this is a rabbit hole. But like, essentially, that like, uh, the information that we get of our environment even if it's at the quantum level is not necessarily what the environment is about but it's rather the information that is good at replicating <laughs> and that is like the the actual things that we sense um, so in, in some sense replication is completely unavoidable um, but i would say in, in some other conceptual ways they, they're like clearly separable so uh he, here's the the overall picture so i don't in in our view, in our worldview, essentially consciousness is not like the result of information processing. That is um there's like a lot of perspectives that 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 uh see that. Um definitely, you know, the whole category of functionalism, computational theory of consciousness and so on. And and I used to believe that. I mean like I used to be a very big promo- proponent of that. Uh but eventually, uh after thinking very deeply about the the what's called the phenomenal binding problem, um which in brief means, how is it possible that all of these, you know, atoms in your brain simultaneously contribute to unified experience? Like if you dig very deep into that problem, uh, you will eventually hopefully realize that the causal power of consciousness, like the reason consciousness was recruited by natural selection is because bound experiences can be useful. So, the causal structure in a sense is not like okay information processing gives rise to consciousness It's more bound experiences have useful properties and those useful properties have been recruited for information processing or for causal effects in organisms so in a sense those you know bound experiences could exist on their own you could create them in a lab (laughs) potentially Uh, they don't need to be part of a you know self-replicating system and like by and large, like if you sample from the state space of consciousness, like, okay, like a bound experience, roughly the size of a experience of a human, overwhelmingly, they're not going to be interested in replicating because that's just like, kind of like hitting the jackpot in like, okay, this one configuration actually, you know, is interested in replicating. Overwhelmingly, the vast majority of like configurations are going to be just like weird things with like very weird interests (laughs) or no interests at all. I mean, like probably most of them kind of like completely happy happy to just be whatever they are you know independent of uh of that um and now the the claim uh furthermore is that um we think that what we want is uh, to replicate in a way um but in some sense i would claim that that is uh, evolution has kind of like shaped us into particularly weird and uncomfortable configurations that makes the relieving of our suffering, uh, conditional on replicating. <laughs> so, um, and I mean, think of it this like quite literally that like when you have a desire, like when you have a, a an intention, a craving or, or, or a hatred or whatnot, um, that happens within our world simulation. I mean, it happens within representations of the environment of other people, of ideas and so on. Um, and so like when you're very afraid of something, you want to kind of like get away from that. And you may think that, you know, you're kind of like that truly your desire here, like what you're truly doing is like trying to get physically away from that. But actually what is going on in the mind is like, you have this kind of uncomfortable configuration that you're trying to relieve and the way to relieve it will involve oftentimes kind of like external actions. But of course you could relieve it in other ways. I mean, like with meditation or, or, uh, with drugs, you could kind of like undo that, that, uh, that uh, unpleasant configuration that is like making you do things. Um, and uh, this is a, a concept we call uh, the tyranny of the intentional object, which is this idea that we believe, you know, that it is the semantic content that is the, the, the external things that makes us happy or unhappy. But deep down actually the thing that is making us happy or unhappy is the configuration of our experience that like, if you introspect on like what is a craving, like fundamentally, what is a craving? You will realize it is like this weird pattern of tension in your energy body that is entangled or is like um, connected with semantic content such that like when you let's say finally buy the car or whatever, your feeling of craving gets relieved. But, like, that was, like, there all along. Like, actually, the thing that you truly, like, were trying to relieve was, like, this uncomfortable, like, uncomfortable tense pattern. Um, Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, it does. Though it raises the question for me, and this is another thing I really wanted to get into, was I think that it's... the way of thinking about valence that I'm used to, and I think a lot of us are, is sort of uh, via the evolutionary lens, right? It's sort of like, what is pain and pleasure? What is, you know, the associated, oh, that's good, I'm attracted to that, or that's bad, I'm repulsed from that. Well, it's it's something that has an evolutionary advantage, which, um, which either will basically ultimately lead to my replication or, you know, uh, delete or detract from it, right? So that... I look at feces and I'm repulsed. Well, there's evolutionary reasons for that, right? And I see a beautiful naked body of the sort of person I'm attracted to and I'm attracted, right? It's sort of like, okay, this is evolution making a a pleasure pain dynamic out of the very stuff of replication. So what I'm intrigued by then is like if we're divorcing in some ways or at least making distinct, differentiating consciousness itself from replication patterns, what's the basis of then understanding the source of valence? Like it, what, what is good or bad, you know, for consciousness when you remove it from a replicate a replicating body?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So this is um, this philosophy. Uh, we're very uh, bullish or in a sense, like we're championing it at uh, the quality research Institute, which is this idea of uh, valence structuralism that like the thing that makes an experience feel good or bad is its configuration. And, um, like that is what consciousness is actually interested in. Like we don't want to be in uncomfortable configurations. And so evolution, you know, is recruiting that, is like connecting, you know, semantic information to make us do things by attaching it with like unpleasant or or, or pleasant configurations of experience. Um, I mean, this is something like once you kind of like learn to notice it, it becomes like super apparent. Like for example, um, you believe you want the chocolate cake, but okay, like what happens when you actually eat the chocolate cake? Okay, you actually have like pleasurable sensations in your mouth, but even more so, you also will have a kind of these pleasant harmonic waves across your body. And like, that was the thing that you wanted all along, not the chocolate cake. Or like, you believe you want, I mean, I guess this is, uh, yeah, let's say like you believe you want a promotion or something like that. Uh, but actually what you want is like the sense of relief and security that comes after after getting it. So, there's like a lot of tricks like that, that like our mind believes it wants something that has to do with replication. But actually, deep down, the thing that it's pursuing is like better configurations that are less dissonant and less asymmetrical. So, yeah.
0: Well, so then, okay, this is really interesting too, because I wanted to ask you about this too. So, um, then, how do we understand evolutionary replication as? potentially serving that end right uh is it because arguably or the way that i interpret some of of this it it can sound a little bit sort of like uh consciousness versus replication which you could almost say is sort of like consciousness versus you know uh organic evolution in some ways but I, i almost want to see that more as like is there a harmonious pairing here? Does, has, has, because I mean, look, I mean, consciousness, as you say, itself became recruited by means of the evolutionary process. So I'm, I'm attracted to the idea of to what degree is, is evolution itself leading us to more harmonious uh, con- configurations? What, what's your thought on that?
1: Oh, totally. I mean, like uh, the Darwinian engine, like is, if, if anything is a thing that can bootstrap essentially like beautiful paradises and full spectrum, super intelligences and like all of the, you know, really, really good stuff that can exist in reality. Um, it, that's true. That's true. Um, that said, I mean, I, I, am often like wary of kind of a uh, romanticizing it and like Darwinian, you know, the Darwinian engine is also an engine of tremendous suffering, you know, like it, it, It it is like just such an incredibly massive, you know, like source of like horrifying things. And Mm. um, in that, like, that's kind of like why I'm not, you know, I don't romanticize it. Like, I I kind of think of it like, okay, like now that we are where we are, like, yes, awesome. Let's take advantage of these. We can be grateful for like the evolutionary process for taking us to this place where We are self-aware and we have the capacity to realize that what we care about is actually states of consciousness. Um, But we also have to understand that like that kind of has a a momentum of of its own and it, you know, if its path is not in a sense like corrected or controlled by kind of this deeper self-awareness. it, 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 we risk essentially, yeah, just kind of getting sucked in into believing that we are like our genes or we are our patterns or or, or, or something else that might not, yeah, it lead to, to a good outcome. But uh, yeah.
0: So then, the, one of the questions for me too then is because so I like that a lot that 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 resonates. Um, it's like we don't need to affirm. Like we can look at what the lion. And the gazelle are up to and be like, yes, this led to the beauty and the, and the incredible uh, facility and utility of design of both of these species to do what they do. And it led to us being what we are, and our sort of recruiting, recruiting of consciousness, but now that we have that we can sort of, we don't have to then just look to that as being what solves everything right because there's a temptation to, i think this really kind of came into the fore in the 19th century in the victorian age when kind of people uh, more or less you know <clears throat> did embrace evolution and you know you had tennyson saying well nature red and tooth and claw and that sort of a thing and it was very scandalizing right and there was sort of like, well, do we just fully adopt this and lead to this sort of social Darwinistic thing, right, or whatever? And then of course you get eugenics and all this sort of stuff. Or is there some way? And I think that that's been a tension that's been playing out for a long time. And I think some of this can kind of help resolve that. And a lot of the stuff that I see evolving in this meta modern meta narrative finds ways of of appropriately relating these different dynamics in sort of a you know a stack where you can appreciate what has been, but that doesn't mean we need to then say you know like past doesn't need to be, or prologue, what do you say? Past is prologue, but uh, prologue doesn't need to be, you know, there's an expression there that isn't coming to mind, but you get it. Um, Prologue doesn't need to be future. Um, But then another really interesting issue comes up for me too, right? Which is that maybe you'll disentangle some of my assumptions here, which can resolve this, but um, it would seem that there's a need to at least maintain our material bodies and replication for the sake of there being human organisms and that sort of a thing, right? Uh, so that consciousness as perceived by human organisms can continue and perpetuate and continue to develop. So uh, yeah, what's sort of the, the, the relationship then between, uh, it's not an antagonistic one, right? It needs to be Integrative of sort of accepting the replication logic while also and, and not and not it, like the danger here would be like you get lost in consciousness and then that becomes everything and then your sort of substrate because it's no longer being sort of tended to at its biological necessity level sort of breaks down but then you lose all the stuff above it if that makes sense unless and here I guess maybe this is the question is the consciousness is that um emerging out of the substrate of our biological replicating bodies or is that a good way of thinking about it or is there a way that yeah okay so i don't know if you understand the basic kind of contours of that question
1: totally i think i think so i think so so first of all uh i mean i think like bound experience like i mean essentially like the sort of experiences that we are having right now with you know rich colors and tactile sensations and thought and emotion all of that Yeah, I mean, you do need a substrate, I think, I think, like, you know, like the human brain, like, I I think that's actually where it's happening. I mean, like, we are physicalists at at QRI, it's just that we think that the, the, the fire that breathes life into the equations of physics is qualia. So, like, everything is conscious, you know, in a trivial way, because consciousness is all that exists. And in some regions of that massive web of consciousness, it assembles in such a way that it creates the sort of experiences that we have but you know everything around you would be conscious this is a version of panpsychism the the caveat though is that it's overwhelmingly what we might describe as mind dust and it's not intelligent and it's not self-aware you know it's it's kind of like this weird dream that doesn't yet yeah, doesn't have a beginning or doesn't have an end uh it doesn't even need to represent a sense of time like uh, I'm sure like if we were to actually know like, okay, what is the experience of <laughs> superfluid helium or something like that, we would be, yeah, very stunned and surprised. It's probably extremely weird, but yeah, I suspect it's still, still qualia. So um, in, in that sense, yeah, like even if we, if we die, like that's not the end of consciousness, but, but it, those, that, all of that consciousness around us is not in any way being selected for like positive valence. So it's, and my, my suspicion is that it's probably like overwhelmingly neutral so like there's, ne- it's neither good nor bad. It's just these around us that like most of the things that actually do involve kind of a a sense of goodness or, or, or badness is essentially things that have been like recruited by natural selection to, to kind of like motivate uh, the organism to, to, to act. Um, now, to your point about like, should we think of this as a antagonistic thing? Um, I would say conceptually, yes. Emotionally, no. So Conceptually, yes, because we actually have to be kind of like clear about like what the th- the threat is, what the danger is. And the truth is that, yeah, there there is a lot of danger and uh, replicator dynamics are extremely seductive. And like, you know, it's, it's one of those things that like they can become like anti-fragile. And it's and I do seriously do believe, you know, we are like in a relatively small wind of time <laughs> where like consciousness actually has a, a fighting chance uh, to kind of like become liberated. Um, And I mean, if I were to kind of intuit, yeah, there's probably like many other timelines, many other you you know universes where replicator dynamics just like won completely. Like even though there was a window of opportunity, uh, and potentially like some of the absolutely worst things that could happen is if suffering turns out to be like very computationally efficient for whatever reason, and then like some large replicator uses suffering for the sake of maintaining its power mm. and th- that seems like quite quite plausible i mean like it's <laughs> there are elements that suggest like you know that could be a viable strategy so that's the sort of things that yeah we absolutely 100 percent need to like avoid somehow <laughs> um but it is also absolutely the case that like yeah i mean like the hippies and people who are like just really 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 like kind of like yeah peace and love and and so on they won't you know make a long lasting impact in the world like if you are in team consciousness but you're refusing to you know give credit to the good things in replicator dynamics if you refuse to look at it um yeah i mean like they will take over by default anyway so uh in some sense yes we need to take you know the best elements from from everything uh to to the extent that it's possible um but yeah i mean I, i i think um uh ultimately what, what we will want is like something that is like robust, something that doesn't decay, uh, something that self-repairs, but that its purpose, like the whole reason of being for it is to create good experiences. Um, Mm.
0: yeah, you can almost think of like addiction as a negative feedback loop based on suffering in some ways. And it's very possible to kind of very it's unfortunately it's not in any way too difficult to conceive of the future in which you just sort of have a runaway addictive uh you know process that that then defines Mm -hmm. everything um but um gosh there's so many interesting avenues that that this could go down the first one because i I definitely want to touch on it i want to explore it a little bit is that you frame you frame this also as leading to you know uh you call it sort of engineering paradise right Or, or or leading to the capacity to if we can properly formulate our understanding of consciousness and valence and, uh, and, and, and positive qualia like in the right way, we can then be intentional about basically framing the future along those lines. And, um, and that uh, then leads to the question of, um, yeah, I guess sort of like where is it all going, right? As you say, there's sort of the possibility that this could all just kind of go into an avenue a kind of hellish direction where replication for its own sake is sort of prioritized and the cost or the effects on consciousness is you know just uh, uh you know not considered at the very least and maybe even in worst case scenarios you say like actual deleterious bad negative qualia are replication uh, a, a kind of positive replicating feedback loop which would be hell i guess really and so the alternative to that is sort of heaven, which is how can we get a positive feedback loop or, or a um, how can we help yeah to engineer uh, with this understanding a future which is, uh, you know, more in line with sort of the five MEO DMT, uh, you know, paradise uh, consciousness state or more than the hellish one. And I guess to frame that as a question, I'm curious because uh, some of the things that have come up in sort of the other. Uh, conversations I've had with people about talking about narratives, meta modern, meta narratives, this sort of thing. If there is a sort of evolutionary track that's underway, um, and it's not, it doesn't necessarily need to be teleological. In fact, a lot of people adamantly say it's not teleological, it's not predetermined, it's not right. But um, but if there is something that's sort of leading us towards a kind of. Uh, greater complexification and this and this sort of thing maybe some kind of a mega point or whatever if you kind of use that terminology um greg enriquez talks about a fifth joint point in complexity where yeah now um something new is added into the mix there's a new emergent uh sort of whether it's an information processing system or something where our future is now um it's based on these material substrates but it's also open to all these new possibilities and, um, you know, a lot of people are thinking in terms of, well, is this is this this um, artificial reality or augmented reality, virtual reality that's starting to come online? Um, I guess the question would be like, when you think about this sort of engineering paradise endeavor, is this a technological endeavor? Is this sort of a uh, is this something that you could see happening by means of our technological insight and capacity, or is this something more biologically and organic and internal? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. So like, is there a teleology here? I mean, in some sense, yes. Um,
0: well, and so... I don't even, it doesn't even, the, the, the crux of the question doesn't have to be the teleology yeah. part, just the yeah. question of what, like in practice, do you see this engineering of paradise really looking like? Could you give an oh, example sure. of like, is this, is this something we'll, you know, we'll be, putting on headsets or we'll be, you know, having a, uh, you know, IV drip or something like, is it, is it using sort of the mechanism of our material bodies? Is it some kind of, uh, you know, eugenic engineering of a superhuman, right? What is, what does the engineering of paradise look like then once we start thinking about consciousness as being what it's all about?
1: Yeah. I mean, I could, I could launch into my, you know, 10 point plan for, 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 (laughs) for paradise. Uh, and I'd, I'd be happy to do that, but, uh, but, uh, Uh, but, but I mean, okay, like maybe the most, you know, value add, uh, response I think would be to clarify that, uh, yeah, I mean like, okay, like transhumanism has a really bad rap, like, and you know, a lot of people, when you mention transhumanism, immediately the thing they think of is, wow, there's like a bunch of ego driven, you know, guys who just you know, love them, like, are narcissistic, and they want to be, feel powerful, and, like, be feel superhuman, and above everybody else, and, and, you know, like, once you meet, for example, David Pierce, you, you realize, like, that picture of transhumanism, at least in some cases, is, you know, completely, completely wrong, like, um, you can actually be a transhumanist driven out of compassion, not driven out of, uh, ego, or driven out of, like, you know, trying to be superior, superior in any way, um, if you are willing to face the true causes of suffering and the true causes of suffering <laughs> ultimately are evolutionary and genetic. And like, I think that it's uh, yeah, something that, you know, we, most people will be in denial about. Um, well, most people will probably not have enough information to kind of like judge that, but, but those who do, will be in denial about it uh, for, for, for a number of reasons. Um, but yeah, to kind of uh, go there, like one, okay, like people are also very afraid of kind of like gene modification from the point of view of, uh, okay, like hubris and, and arrogance and so on, or like messing with kind of like our identities or non-consensual, and etc. There's like a lot of arguments of that sort. I would mention that if you take a Buddhist perspective, um, there's actually no essence to who you are, right? Like um, if you had been born with like one gene different, it doesn't mean like it would have been a different person i mean conventionally yes but it's actually all all a gradient right like and throughout your life you are like many different persons you're like many different types of experience and like the difference between those and let's say um who you would be if you had like a gene that was like slightly different there will be like overlap so like in some sense like the question of like is this the same person or not is is actually um Assumes kind of like a hard boundary, and actually there are no hard, there are no hard boundaries <laughs> between between like peoples and personalities and modes of being, uh, which is really crazy. It's it goes counter to our our intuition. But yeah, there's no hard boundaries. I mean, there is a um, there, there 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 is a way of like slowly transforming. Let's say my biology, such that eventually I converge towards your biology, <laughs> and uh, and at what point I became you? There would there's not going to be a hard boundary. It's it's actually a, a gradient. So. In that sense, like modifying genes, I think like it's is not as like scary as people might think uh, because you're not like, you know, messing with like a fundamental ontological identity. You're just kind of like messing with a gradient a little bit. And another important perspective is, I mean, people say like, well, that's like reckless, you know, genetic experimentation. Of course you could do reckless genetic experimentation. That is definitely not anything I would advocate. What I will say though, is that nowadays having a child, <laughs> a completely natural child, is a reckless genetic experiment i mean we're talking about you know your child has like one in a thousand chance of having cluster headaches it has like one in ten chance of developing kidney stones you know the one in five chance of developing you know chronic depression um chronic pain etc et like so many things are like gene driven like just so many things and it's very strange to say like yes you know i, I identify with who i am at every level um but I still want my cystic fibrosis cured. Whereas like, why not say like, well, let's get rid of the genes that are giving rise to the cystic fibrosis. It's not gonna make you, it's not gonna destroy who you are. Mm. It's just gonna slightly shift, slightly shift the gradient. Only um, yeah. because like this idea that you were somebody completely separate and and unique, like was wrong to begin with <laughs> at a fundamental physical, physical level. Um, that said, you know, okay, like genetic solutions, um, are kind of like d- down the line. Uh, I'm sure they will probably be, uh, yeah, the, the most important of, of all. Like David Pierce has like this beautiful line about how we uh, imagine, okay, transhuman futures of like, you know, people taking a lot of drugs and like being super finely tuned. But in a sense, like if your genes by nature are making you super happy, like taking a drug would actually just disrupt to that perfect attractor. So like I, I do actually envision a, a future where, you're just so happy by default that like taking any drug is actually immoral <laughs> because it's going to lower that happiness <laughs> both in the short and long term so that is the sort of like feature I, I would envision as like actually really really wholesome it's like you don't even need any drug or anything you're just naturally perfectly fine um and uh but but yeah in the in the short term though um we need essentially kind of a a, a three-prong approach I, I would describe it so we need uh, and this is kind of, yeah, the three pillars that we advocate at, at QRI, which is, uh, number one, let's get rid of intense suffering. Um, like, that's kind of a huge priority. We, we just have no idea how bad intense suffering is until you experience it. And, and it's like, it's so much worse than what, what people intuitively imagine. And it's like so much more common than what people intuitively imagine. And finally, uh, there's many kinds of extreme suffering that may actually be way easier to prevent then what people realize, uh, I, I could get into that if, if you're curious. second one is we 've got to figure out how to impre- improve the baseline of, of happiness um, which has like so many other like downstream like positive effects you know from productivity to social harmony um, and finally uh, we 've got to study peak experiences like what makes you know not only what makes you wake up in the morning because you have a morning coffee that makes you you know cheapy, which is great, but also like what makes you, you know, actually love reality at a much deeper level, which is, yeah, I mean, the fact that things such as 5MEO exist or or MDMA or, you know, falling in love or uh, ultimately things such as like, you know, big philosophical insights and amazing mind-blowing experiences. So what is that? Like, why do they exist and, and, and what is their nature? And can we make more of them in a, you know, healthy, sustainable fashion? Um, so I think like with those three approaches, you know, taken to to kind of like a, a mature version, we will probably get something that kind of looks like paradise. I mean something that doesn't have extreme suffering. Okay, I think that's wonderful. Uh everybody's kind of like a little bit better <laughs> on a day-to-day basis, motivated and, and happy pro social. And there's like free, freely available access to like blissful divine experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that to me sounds like pretty paradise cycle.
0: That's really interesting. Just a couple observations. One is that, you know, your vision is is very organic. Well I mean, other people wouldn't necessarily apply that term if you're thinking in terms of like, you know, non-GMO sort of organic, right? But like it's um, it's not sort of the techno transhumanist vision, right? Of like, we'll all just plug our minds into a, a no. supercomputer, or whatever, right? Which is um, you know, so the 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 ways that people see this sort of potential transcendence occurring down the line uh, is different. And so it's interesting just to know where where kind of how how, how you potentially see that unfolding. Um, and there's a lot of questions I have there. I mean, I, I want to, I don't, I don't want to belabor the point, but I think it's an interesting one that just comes up or, in organically at this point, which is like, um, uh, you know, is there a concern about one of the concerns about something like CRISPR, right. Or these sorts of uh, technologies. If we start really thinking about how can we intentionally alter our own uh, you know, genetic makeup and how can we sort of become involved intentionally in the evolutionary process, this sort of stuff. Right. There's a, there's a worry about that hubris of like, well, these things are complex systems with a complexity that the hubris lies precisely in thinking that like a human mind can feel like it, it, it understands all the variables enough, right. Um, to, to, to be confident to actually change or interrupt the process. Um, and so that that does come up for me a little bit here. Is sort of like, uh, what do you say to that potential um, kind of critique, right?
1: Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. I mean, like, I, I very much take seriously things like, uh, you know, Chesterton's defense. Like, if, if there's like something that is, you know, some barrier, some some something that is fixed, um, and you don't know what it's doing, yeah, it's probably probably good, you know, not to not to mess with it uh, until you know, okay, like, w- w- what is the function of this? Um, and uh, for sure, like, there is a lot of hoopers in, like, thinking, yeah, let's, you know, modify our genes and, and we'll be, like, everything is going to be better. Uh, no, I mean, I, I think this is going to be, like, a very long and, like, actually, like, very cautious process. And I would actually, you know, kind of be critical of the sort of interventions that we, we do to ourselves all the time as actually being too extreme. I mean, like, in a lot of cases, I might describe like the philosophy and, and the actual effects of things such as like, you know, SSRIs as kind of like being like a big hammer on the serotonin system. Um, where like the stories that we tell each other about how it works, like are probably pretty different than how it actually works. And, uh, and we, we downplay essentially, yeah, all of the side effects that come with it. Uh, no I mean, I, I don't even mean like physical side effects, but yeah, in terms of like how it affects people's psychology and social interactions and, all, all of that I mean for sure there's there's a yeah very big interventions uh like that you have to be obviously very very cautious um and one one kind of like philosophy here I think it's uh it's very important to have kind of a a an approach to modification that respects kind of like um the very very, very long process of evolution that gave rise to okay these like very complex systems that that we are at the same time i don't think it's like as complicated as like something like string theory <laughs> and um i think like as we develop like better causal understanding of how the body works how biology works yeah i mean i i i suspect there's going to be like some fairly straightforward interventions that do really drastically improve well-being without having a lot of other like uh side effects and so one very promising uh example is a case of uh joe cameron which is a seventy year old you know vegan school teacher like elementary school teacher um, and she's like really lovely and like very friendly by all means uh by all lights a very normal kind of lady uh very very like pleasant to be around um not not psychopathic or anything of the sort you know very empathic um, and it turns out you know she says that she's never suffered in her life and uh, it's not only a psychological thing if you ask her um how childbirth felt she says oh childbirth felt like a tickle so essentially like extremely painful things for her are yes noticeable like okay i've got to you know go to the er or whatever but they're not like you know earth-shattering horrible things that are like traumatizing and like not nothing like that happens to her um and that genetically there is the hypothesis i mean we don't obviously know but like what's something really unusual about her genetic makeup is uh, mutation in the FAAH gene, which modulates the breakdown of anandamide, one neurotransmitter, um, which is like re- related to the canna- cannabinoid system. But uh, I mean, essentially, it seems that she has a genetic makeup where she can, in a sense, get the benefits of of like mild pain as a sig- useful signaling mechanism, without the subjective you know, raw fields of that. And, uh, okay, like for people, for example, for for our families where like chronic pain is a very like common occurrence, um, trying out like, you know, with CRISPR or by whatever means, I mean, like getting uh, that mutation and see if that drastically reduces the probability of developing chronic pain seems to be, yeah, a, a pretty reasonable kind of mild, you know, intervention, unlikely to have kind of like tremendous downstream you know side effects and and, and, and things of the sort um mm. and uh yeah, i mean that, that is the sort of thing like okay the the entryway for for sure i guess like the, there's a a whole other kind of like chapter having to do with like paradise uh vr exploring consciousness itself and uh psychonautics and, and things like that but um in terms of kind of like very no nonsense like pain relief uh, i'm yeah i'm thinking much more of that kind of like you know, sure. very mild interventions. Yeah.
0: Well, okay. And then another another potential critique critique that came up for me while exploring some of these thoughts is um, uh, the idea that that you could consider this potentially like a within the framework of almost like an updated Gnosticism, if you know what I mean, right? There's sort of um, if you go all the way back, right? The Gnostics were um, sort of very anti-body, anti body anti desire flesh very you know ascetic um which is of course always been part of many different religious uh ways of thinking but there was a sense of you know oh body is bad and this sort of immaterial thing is good um and and we kind of need to denigrate the body and you know aim for the the uh kind of transcendent as it were and versions of that of course kind of permeate so many different uh religious impulses right um where to the point where it's you know in the past hundred years and particularly kind of in post-modernity and the post critiques of a lot of things, it was sort of like, no, we need to get back to the body. We need to, you know, thinkers like Nietzsche and others were like, it's our biological drives, which are sort of the source of our, of our intensity in our art and our power and this and that. Um, so I wanted to kind of get your take on that idea is like, is, is there, what would you say to 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 folks who would say, well, this is this kind of just sounds like Gnosticism 2.0, you know, like anti-sex replication, pro-consciousness, you know, transcendence or something like that.
1: Um, the key difference, perhaps, is that I don't think Gnostics would be all that into like, you know, MDMA states of consciousness. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. I mean, essentially like having like actual pleasure, I think it's good. It's just the the downstream effects of like pursuing pleasure compulsively in our current, you know, embodied condition. That is the problem. I mean, like I, like how to say this, right? It's like people either, you know, they, they might be kind of like a shields and advocates for like specific drugs, or they will oftentimes like say like, yeah, no, that's like, you know, fake or, or, or terrible. No, look, my my contrarian view here is that, the high of like methamphetamine is great. It's good. It's a good state of consciousness. Like, and it could actually like in its good side, it actually can be like really wholesome and, and fantastic, beautiful, you know, insightful, clever, et cetera. <laughs> great. It's just that in our current bodies, it activates a um, negative feedback mechanism that gives rise to like downstream, like really negative states and like very resilient addiction and craving and, and so on. So, um and i think like gnostics would probably say something like no the the state of you know the high of of a methamphetamine experience is inherently dirty there's like Mm -hmm. something terrible about kind of being so infatuated with a a a state like that whereas i would say like no it's just the problem is that the ways in which we can get it are just very unskillful and like we just have to figure out alternative ways that are actually sustainable so maybe in that sense is like pretty different
0: (laughs) Yeah, no that that makes a lot of sense. Um, definitely, um, I wanted to 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 come back to that question about um, stage uh, stuff and and levels too. If you have a, just a, a little bit longer, um, yeah, I was kind of intrigued by and i'm not sure if i fully understand the association here uh so i just wanted to probe that a little bit more which is um yeah in that video you talk about robert keegan you talk about spiral dynamics and 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 ken wilber and and the metamodernists and sort of set this up as sort of a uh, developmental kind of lens um and i kind of wanted to to explore that more with you a bit is it is the correlation there that that um what you're talking about in terms of uh consciousness versus replicators is sort of a uh a level or a, compl- a complexity stage uh lens through which you know you're seeing sort of more clearly the universal plot than say, you know, less complex, more simplistic versions of like good versus evil, you know, uh, a balance of good and evil. Like, was that the connection or is there something more that I'm missing between uh, how you're thinking about things in terms of the, the stage complexity uh, gradient here?
1: I would, I would say there's a lot of like non-trivial connections. Um, And I'm sure like we could probably even like brainstorm uh, more, but, uh, probably like the most straightforward one is uh, if you look at kind of the the Keegan levels, um, the progression is something along the lines of, okay, you identify with some aspect of your experience and you identify the environment as like, you know, the other. (laughs) And when you advance to the next level, what you do is you in some sense like internalize the environment And then you identify with the dynamic between what you thought you were Mm -hmm. and the thing that was the other. And then you identify with that. So it's like, okay, sure. First you identify with your own, you know, individual selfish desires and you think of everybody else as as different. Oh, then you switch to like identifying with um, the rules of society, you know, and then you, you internalize that. It's like, okay, then you take that as the object and you say like, okay, wait, I'm not, actually like a lot of different societal rules that are like incompatible and different from one another so you identify with that dynamic and now you think of like the thing that you're subjected to might be something else maybe kind of like ideological dialogue or something like that and then like oh my gosh like you can take that as the object and you kind of like disidentify with it um and then you identify with the whole dynamic so there is this kind of like recursive process and how many layers deep it goes might correlate quite quite a bit with uh, what is your developmental stage and it's also I think very related with uh, uh, essentially detachment from you know belief that you are a particular form I mean like um, at the most basic level yeah if you identify with your body with your ego um, and you cannot disidentify with it you will be like stuck in a particular developmental stage or like if you identify with like an ideology or a political party you know, or something like that and you truly like you embody that identification, you may just get stuck in there and in any one of those cases like a very straightforward solution of like uh you know the Buddhist perspective of if you can perceive it you're not it like if you're if like if you're perceiving a form you're not it like whatever it may be you're not that like yes I think like that. Is both like metaphysically true, <laughs> but also is a sort of thing that like accelerates like these developmental stages, and also is a sort of thing that allows you to realize that yeah, the thing that matters is consciousness, not the particular forms that uh, the consciousness is embodying.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that it also made me think about how that relates to memes, right? If you do think about the idea of a meme as being a an analog. A sort of conceptual analog to a material gene right and that memes then thus want to reproduce or replicate themselves if you are embodying inhabiting and identifying with a meme a cultural meme a value meme then you're not uh you're not the consciousness that is doing the identifying with right and so like there's a way in which i think that the different levels of existence can be very meaningfully understood as uh, this sort of extraction or disembedding of consciousness itself from the replication model, really, right? Of like, uh, is that a, a meaning? Is that does that make like, is that a a good way to apply this sort of way of thinking to what you're talking about? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, a lot of people might associate, like associate a lot of kind of like moral feelings to this, like, um, like. Yeah. Like, like it's, it's bad. Like it's morally bad if you identify with a particular pattern and, um, and it's morally good if you kind of like do this, this identification. And I mean, in some sense, like, I would say it's like better to think of it as like skillful versus unskillful. And it's really not like a moral thing that is going on at a more fundamental level, it's a physical thing (laughs) that is going on. I mean, if you look at like the actual practices, Uh, that allow you to sort of like disidentify with your ego and things like that. You can kind of realize there's an element of like literally kind of reducing the kind of like magnetic charge (laughs) that that your thought forms um, are bound together into this ego construct. So like, for example, taking cold showers or enduring like hot peppers without flinching and kind of meditating on equanimity and things like that is to kind of just like let let that energy flow without like trying to grasp it or trying to, to, to shape it into a self-image. And like that is a physical process. I mean, I, I'm very bullish on thinking that like, yeah, I mean, like our thoughts are in some sense like <laughs> eddies in the electromagnetic field and you're wielding them and forging them and annealing them and, and merging them and, and all sorts of things like that. And uh, to identify with your ego is actually a physical process. Like you're kind of getting wrapped up into this magnetic current and you're getting stuck in it in some weird attractor. And to get out of it, it involves essentially a kind of physical transformation, like taking cold showers and saying like, yeah, this is not me, this is not me, this is not me. And you kind of sort of separate from it. And then with that separation, that distance, you can realize like, oh, okay, it has these properties. Uh, so good that I'm separated from it because now I don't feel defensive. I don't. I don't need to, to defend that it has these bad things. I can just say, yeah, it actually has these bad things without like feeling attacked.
0: Yeah, um, you know, like the 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 meta modern way of framing development is um, is is largely through like the commons mo- model of hierarchical complexity, right? And so it's very explicitly tied to complexity. But um, I think you could make the case really for for so many different developmental models, especially when you get into sort of a meta-psychological framing that this is um, an axis uh, that unfolds through complexity, really, that, that it's a different, like if you're doing these higher level integrations, you're integrating more and more things. And so there's more and more complexity sort of in the mix. Um, And again, I see that as an exciting part of this narrative. That's the sort of leading us to, well, as, as the universe goes through this sort of uh, universal Darwinistic process of evolution at all the levels, biological, but also, you know, like cosmic evolution, all the ways that these things uh, wind up complexifying through time that you do get a deepening of consciousness that includes the ability for consciousness itself to disembed itself from its more immediate environment and able to kind of identify itself more and more with what that core element is. Um, which then again kind of paints this a little bit more as sort of a a, a storyline right like an arc it began here it's been unfolding through time and it's leading in a particular place which i don't know for me uh aesthetically i like that a bit more um so there's just there's that lingering element of, of all this that i i kind of want to tease out a little bit um of of the the relationship of complexification uh through development that leads to this process i think i think
1: you can have like increasing complexity without development, and like you can have like an extremely brilliant savant mathematician who like hasn't even you know crossed the second gigan level because it's like mm-hmm. very very like immersed in his world and uh, like that that can totally happen. So like I I wouldn't be infatuated with complexity itself, uh, but rather kind of like the developmental process does give rise to higher complexity thinking as a side effect through this process of identification with a particular construct you embody it for a while you kind of like get motivated you identify with it and then you disidentify and you identify with the dynamic within which it's embedded every time you do that yes you're adding one layer to your like model of the world in terms of like you know nested hierarchies of interactions so uh, developmental stages lead to complexity but but complexity doesn't lead to developmental stages so it's Mm -hmm. uh, uh, hopefully that, that clarifies a little bit
0: there's a, there's so many more elements of all this. I'd love to dig into more. So maybe we can do this again at some point. Um, and um, I appreciate you talking, <laughs> spending the time, and 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 doing this. We can pick it up maybe down the line. But um, perfect. Nice. All right, cool. A lot of fun. All right, thank you, thank you so much you. for having me.